talking with Ethan Griffiths, a court reporter who is based in Wellington, and we're going to talk about the role that the media plays in facilitating public access to justice. Often judges speak about the media as being the eyes and the ears of the public, so I've brought one of those eyes and ears in today to have a conversation about what it's like to translate judges and lawyers for people who may not have any legal background at all. Yeah, so I am uh, an open justice reporter. Um, open justice is a program that's funded through New Zealand on Air um, for about 14 court reporters nationwide, from Northland down to Dunedin. So um, quite a big team. Our job essentially is everything crime and justice. Uh, so anything that loosely relates to a topic of justice, whether it be any tribunal, any court, um, any determination of any legal body, that's sort of our domain. Um and the gist of the program essentially is is that um, justice in court reporting has been lacking um, for a long time in this country. Um, sort of in the past, there would be lists in the paper of everyone convicted of drink driving, for example. Um, the amount of resources that were in court um, was, was sizable, and it's just not like that today, um, which is sort of the reason for the publicly funded um, program to basically get more eyes and, and ears in court, essentially. And so what was it that interested you specifically in court reporting? Uh, I've always been interested in justice. Um, I have an incredible sense of justice. Most journalists do. Um, It's something that I'm very passionate about. If I wasn't a journalist, I'd probably be studying law. Um, So it was an area that I wanted to get into. Um, I think it's an area of journalism that is, as I said, um, severely lacking in terms of its coverage. Um, And yeah, the the position came up and, and I thought I had something to offer. And so as a non-lawyer then coming into the courtroom setting, what were the things that you found the most difficult to pass through at the beginning? My, the, the breadth of my legal knowledge has been almost solely informed by coverage that I've read in the past of, of other journalists, right? Apart from the likes of law mooting in high school and things like that, my, I, I have you know, no legal training at all and very, very limited experience. Um, so I've been in court for, for a year and a half now, um, the first few weeks were very daunting in terms of, of you're coming into this this room, <laughs> everyone in the courtroom is, is, is looking at you, and you're attempting to try and soak up everything that's being said and, and that's happening in court. Um, so it's something you, you have to sort of learn quite quickly. Um, but I always felt very supported. I always felt like I could talk to a lawyer, for example, um, and ask, look, what, what's going on here? Um but for a member of the public coming in and, and looking at it, um, it can be an enormously confusing place, as I'm sure you can imagine. And um, it's our responsibility to try and explain that as best we can to the general public, which sometimes can be can be quite difficult. Um, criminal, uh, I think the public has a much greater understanding of how that works because that seems to be the most high profile. You start getting into, into civil law uh, and various aspects of that. Um, for example, environmental offending, um, which I covered a bit in, in Tauranga as well, um, can be, you know, there are there are principles and processes there that can be quite confusing to a lot of people. So when you talk about that responsibility of, of trying to translate that for people, what do you think is the importance of that? The justice system and the courts belong to the public, but broadly the public don't attend, mainly because it happens during the day, people are going about their lives. Um, it's not something... It's, it's not a spectacle where the public come and sit and watch. But it is also seriously important that what goes on, you know, within the courtroom walls is brought to the public. And that's for a variety of reasons. The most obvious is that so they, they know what's going on. Um, they know what cases are progressing. They know what the outcomes are. 
But there's also, um, we're also referred to by some as the watchdog of justice in many ways. And you've got lawyers who are there who are, you know, watchdogs in a sense themselves. But then you have particular cases which uh, are completely outside the realm of what should occur. Um, one of those I covered, which which resulted um, in a High Court appeal. Those cases, and I've only had a few of them, or, or two of them, where, where there are glaring errors, but those would not have been spotted without someone from the media in the room. And every other court reporter across the country has had experiences like that. Uh, in many ways, you know, we are a watchdog, in a sense. And it's a it's a bigger responsibility to bring those stories to the public. Um, they have a right to know what's going on inside court that most just can't attend. You talk about having a, a right to know, and obviously the, the courts have spoken often about the importance of journalists as the eyes and ears of the public. Um, but at the same time, the court will, from time to time, make orders that the public isn't allowed to know mm. certain things. How do you find it dealing with suppression orders in particular? Dealing with suppression orders is is difficult, and it can be difficult. I mean, you've got name suppression, you've got suppression, and that extends to identifying features, which can be sort of a, a battle in itself. Um, but then you've got things like bail hearings and sentence indications and things like that, which, which can be um, even more difficult to grapple with. But in saying that, usually I think the court gets the balance right. Um, from my experience, suppression is only really utilised when it's required. Um, and, and, you know, there has to be a justification for it. That's laid out to us as media. Uh, and we have the right to challenge that if we like, which we have done on occasion and we've been successful other times we haven't. Broadly, the balance is right. I tend to think it's difficult, but it is is important, particularly in, in the in the age that we live in now, um, you know, where, where things can be posted and classes online um, very, very quickly with very little oversight. I think when I first started uh, appearing in court, probably one of the things I found the most surprising was journalists being allowed to stay in court during chamber sessions when mm. the public's excluded. Um, I mean, that's sort of subject to its own special rules around suppression, but how do you find reporting on things when you've got a knowledge of what's happening in chambers? The value of having journalists in chambers is, is they have a full understanding of what's going on and what the discussions are, are behind the scenes, and chambers discussions are very important. And the fact that those are essentially held in secret and cannot be reported, we, we take very, very seriously. When you're reporting a case, you are reporting, you have in your head, how would you, A, tell the story to someone who wasn't there, and B, you need to tell the story like you are sitting in the public gallery, like you're a member of the public there. So you're not reporting stuff that is subdued to say or is, is subject to suppression. The thing with, with court reporting is that the law requires it to be a accurate and fair account of the proceedings in court. It leaves very little, and I'm sure some lawyers will disagree with this, but it leaves, in my view, little room for sensationalism um, and and bending of the truth, I think. There are cases where that does happen, uh, and judges rightly get annoyed, um, but it is court reporting is played with, with a pretty straight bat, I think, uh, most of the time, and it has to be, because you are reporting on a legal body. And judges who say that they don't read the news, I don't believe them. I think most of them do, and probably rightly so, to be honest. So there's obviously uh, restrictions around sensationalism, but story choice is an important part mm. of how you communicate. I mean, the, you know, the average district court list has got 30 or 40 matters being dealt yeah. with. How do you determine which ones are worth reporting on? Well, once upon a time, and this is many, many years ago, all of them, would, would be reported on, or at least there'd be an effort to try and report on everything. These days, that's just not possible with the resources we have. I'm not an absolutist in that sense. 
I go into court, I get the list every morning, you have a look at what's on it, and there's a few considerations that you have to make in deciding what you're going to cover. Who the person is, 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 a, is a big part of that. If they are a known member of the community, that is obviously something you're going to want to cover. The severity of the offending, uh, obviously anything to do with the death, you know, murder, manslaughter, um, dangerous driving, causing death, anything like that, is a must, that's always covered. And then there's other aspects, for example, the nature of the offending, who the victim is, um, sometimes, you know, of, of the things that we, we cover the least, it would probably be sexual harm uh, and, and sexual offending, um, mainly because, A, there are lots of suppressions involved, B, depending on the nature of the offending, be it in family or, 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 or things such as that, um, the public interest argument can be, can be strained somewhat. Um, so so there's, there's a multitude of factors that go into it. And then, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say, you know, a good story also comes into it as well. I mean, if someone, you know, goes and smashes an ATM, it might not necessarily be, you know, the most attractive story in the world. But if that person took a bulldozer and smashed into the ATM, which I've had <laughs> in court before, then that is, you know, a better story. And, and you have to look at it from the eyes of the public. You know, what do the public want to read? What do they want to know what happened? And that is the biggest test, ultimately. I also note that if a defendant already has suppression and we're not aware of the case and we see on the list that they've got suppression, that's always going to raise our eyebrows because um, that implies perhaps some suggestion that the person is well-known. Uh, although, in saying that, suppression at first appearance now is increasingly common, um, probably rightly so, given the circumstances. You mentioned before the role of being something of a watchdog for justice. Mm. Um, and would you say that that's the other side of the coin when it comes to being the public's ears in court, is that you're also the public's right to object? I think so. One thing that was always quite daunting coming into the job is sort of having to stand up in court and and talk to the judge and, and put our case. Um, and that happens in a variety of scenarios, be it suppression, photo applications, things like that, and, and even accessing documents. Um, I mean, a lot of what we can report really depends on what the judge will give us. I've had scenarios in the past where a judge has denied me access to documents because he has alleged that the reporting is sensationalist. He didn't provide any evidence for that. He didn't give any basis for it. He just said, no, we're not going to give you these documents. Now, that, to me, frustrates me because it, it's not denying the document to me. It's denying the document to the public. And and this was a simple summary of facts, and, uh, for example. So the role of a journalist in court, as I've explained, is to bring the stories to the public. Uh, and the court needs to make themselves accessible to, to us, I think. Um, and I think that's one of the areas that is lacking at the moment. It's certainly, from my conversations with experienced court reporters, something that has improved greatly. Um, but in terms of, of our role, um, bringing that to the public, it, it requires sort of working in conjunction with the court and with lawyers to make that happen. Yeah, absolutely. Picking up on, on something you said there about photo applications, mm. so there's probably a, a much greater range of options now for journalists having audio and even video within the courtroom at different times. What, mm. what do you see as being the importance of that in reporting? It comes down to what the public wants. And when the public is reading a court report, they have the defendant's name. It has been you know, long throughout history, be it courtroom sketches, which is still the norm in many countries. Um, people want to see who's in court. You know, the term that's often used is we are the eyes and ears. Um, we're not necessarily just the ears. Um, <laughs> it's the way it was explained to me. So uh, photos are 
I believe, a necessary aspect of it. Video, I mean, it depends on the medium that you're working in. Um, I mean, if I was a TV reporter, I'd be sitting here saying, we need video, we need video, because how else are you going to explain it to the public, right? Um, not a TV reporter, so I, I've never taken video in court. Photographs are important. Um, audio recording is an interesting one. I'm not a radio reporter, so I don't tend to use audio. But there is a really strong argument for audio in terms of, of note-taking and having a record of what happened for the purposes of accuracy. Most of the journalists in court now do not have a shook hand. It's not something that's really taught these days. You know, court is an area where you cannot stuff something up in terms of reporting. It's something, uh, you know, an audio recording of proceedings is important, and that requires an application at the moment. There's some justification for it because it is a, a recording of the proceedings in court. But there's also an argument to be made that journalists, accredited reporters who are trusted with suppressed information to be in a court, perhaps should also be able to record the proceedings of that court in the interest of accuracy. On photos, they are, I wouldn't say a nice to have, they are not a fundamental aspect of court reporting, but it is something that is welcomed when it is, when it is allowed and would certainly fight, you know, if we felt a decision denying the ability to take a photograph was, was unfair, we, we would find that. You mentioned accredited reporters mm. in your last answer, and I'm interested to hear a little bit more about that, because obviously there have been cases recently where bloggers or people like mm. that have tried to put themselves alongside journalists. Mm. What would you say are the important distinctions between the role you have and someone else who just wants to perhaps go on a tear online mm. talking about what they've seen in court? Being an accredited reporter is laid out in, in the court rules and the in-court media guidelines. You have to be a reporter working for an organisation that is subject to uh, the Broadcasting Standards Authority or the Media Council, which is the self-regulatory body that oversees the media. So if you're not one of those, you are, in the eyes of the court, not a reporter, that's fair. It's the same with the Parliamentary Press Gallery, for example. Uh, that's that's how it works. Um, I have had, had um, experiences, particularly um, following sort of COVID cases, where you are getting... Um, bloggers and, you know, fringe journalists, as they call themselves, in court. The biggest part of our role is that we are, we are trained to do our role. We are trusted by the courts to report accurately and fairly. And we do because we know the consequences if we don't. If I went out and intentionally broke suppression, I have absolutely no doubt that I would be, I would be prosecuted for that. And, and that's how it should be. That degree of trust doesn't necessarily exist with bloggers. Um, there was there was one particular case, Graham Phillip, New Zealand's first convicted saboteur. <laughs> that case had significant number of, of suppression orders um, surrounding it. Still does. There were bloggers here in the public gallery in court who who just breached those suppression orders as soon as they as soon as they went out. So that's something we take very seriously. And there is absolutely a distinction between an accredited reporter and you know a member of the public coming in with their notebook. Um, you know, writing something on their blog afterwards. Now, you said earlier in our conversation that you felt that there were aspects that are lacking in court reporting in New Zealand. What do you think are the gaps? Resources, essentially. I'll give Toto for an example. At the Bay of Plenty Times, where I was based last year, we had, had one reporter there who had been doing it for, for many, many years. Now, on an average week, she would probably only cover, you know, two or three cases out of the 30, 40, sometimes 50 a day. In terms of the, the wider open justice team, I felt that Tauranga, uh, or, or the Bay of Plenty area, which includes um, Rotodora as well, where, where there's little court reporting resources, it, it was a mammoth task, and I, there was never a shortage of public interest stories, stories that simply don't get covered, uh, or, or, or 
word covered before this program was in place. One example that a lot of other reporters on our team have, have shared is going into court and having a lawyer come over to them and object. Why is this case in the public interest? You know, why, why are you reporting on this? And with respect, it's not a lawyer's job to decide what is in the public interest and what isn't, right? Um, and the fact that that attitude exists, and this is you know, not an isolated incident, this has happened multiple times with our reporters, speaks to sort of just how little oversight there's been in, in recent years. It's nothing like it used to be, and this is journalism more broadly. It's, it's underpaid, it's you know, lack of resources, and, and a lack of staffing. And how did you find the relationship with lawyers generally when you came into court? It's, it's a mix. There's some who, who are very, very helpful. You know, you, you have the lawyers who, who are quite happy to have their stories and their name in the paper. And then you've got others who are, you know, more opposed to it. You know, a lot of the old guard, I felt, w- were better because they had started at a time where court reporters were in court all the time. So a lot of the younger, younger lawyers tend to be, tend, tended to be slightly surprised by it, I think. Um, but I formed great relationships with lawyers, absolutely. Um, I also had lawyers who, you know, called my work sensationalist and said that I was, you know, intentionally smearing their clients. Um, it, it, it's a mix, but I'm I'm confident that I approached the job in the best way I could, and I think most court reporters do as well. Um, it, it really comes down to how the lawyer wants to engage with you. I think. So, in terms of communicating the things that happen in a courtroom. Are there particular issues that you found it hard to communicate effectively or you found more challenging to get your point across when you're talking about what happens in a courtroom? I think from a public perspective, one thing that I am always asked about um, is is sentencing. I think a a lot of the public struggle with how sentencing works and I don't think they fully grasp it either. I know I certainly didn't when I came into a courtroom for the first time and sat through a sentencing list. Mitigating and aggravating factors is one I know it's been in the news in the last few days as well. Um, it's one thing that I think the public struggles with. Cultural reports as well is something that, that a lot of questions are asked about. I don't think, from the conversations that I have with, with members of the public, I don't think there's a great understanding of the methodical sentencing process that takes place, which I, you know, to speak personally, think is, is the balance is usually right in that process. It is not a case of, right, here's the details of the offending, um, here's some, you know, relatively similar cases, we're going to give you this, prison, six years, off you go. It's it's not like that at all. Um, that's something that's quite hard to get across to the public, and it's a case of attempting to explain all of those factors, which can be hard, because a lot of those mitigating factors or aggravating factors, usually mitigating, can be suppressed. Mm-hmm. Health issues, for example. And as a court reporter, you're sitting sitting in court thinking, oh, yeah, well, not that we're supposed to have opinions, but that seems reasonable given the circumstances. And you put it on paper and it looks different to how it was expressed in court. And that can be a difficulty. Yeah, I've seen judges talk about that issue as well. Because mm. I mean, there was a, a recent court of appeal case that I was involved in where the sentences were being reduced by a significant margin, but the reasons for that were, were very personal and very private. Yes, yeah. And so we did, before a decision was made, removing parts of the judgment from the published version, the court came back with exactly that question and said, you know, mm. why'd the public be confused yeah. about the outcome if they don't have access to this information about it? I mean, how, how do you think you strike that balance when you've got something that's so personal and so private? But at the same time, the story just doesn't make sense without it. Usually they're covered by suppression orders, those, those private things. So there's, there's, in many ways, no real way around it. You can word it in a way that, 
there was a mitigating factor, usually we might be given some degree of, of flexibility in that we can say health issues, for example, we can't say mental health issues, we can't say, you know, whether it be suicidal ideation or whatever it might be, we, we can't go into that level of detail. The public can be quite good at reading between the lines, I think, um, in those scenarios, um, at other times, <laughs> not too good at it. We are given what we are given to work with, and that's essentially what we have to do. You can word it in various ways. You know, the rationale behind suppressing most of those decisions, if they are deeply personal, is, is fear. Um, and, and as I say, I think usually the balance is, is right with suppression. Now, you mentioned cultural reports before. I think that's a bit of a, a cultural touchstone at the moment mm. as well. And it's a difficult thing to communicate the you know, the quite deep underpinning that sits behind that. How mm. do you find trying to deal with cultural reports when you're reporting on sentencing? Well, you've just got to report them at face value. And and it's not my job to sit there and, and oh, yeah, well, this guy had a hard upbringing. What's, you know, that's no excuse, for example. I mean, that's not my role. My role is, I mean, that's a consideration for the court. So we have to report basically as much as we can about what was in that cultural report, how that contributed to a 10%, you know, 15% discount, whatever it may be. <laughs> We take that at face value, and and I think it's very important that those reasons are reported because I think from conversations that I've had that there is a section of the public that that don't like cultural reports. I mean, there are there are you know policies from some political parties to to, to get rid of them. So it's how the system works. Uh, we are beholden to the system, and we we write as the proceedings occur. I think. You've spoken about you know the difficulty with working through some of these suppression orders. Do you ever have to go back to the court and get clarification around what you can and can't say All on the time. a narrow issue? All the time. I think sometimes judges, have, you know, having been in the system for many, many years and grasping it entirely, often don't explain it to the full extent that they should. And as a reporter, you know, we're not going to sit there with a suppression order and think, Oh, that might mean this. Oh, let's just go. Because I mean, that, yeah. that runs the risk of being in breach of said order. So that's something you, you never do. I take expression really, really seriously. All of us do. And you have the occasional the occasional stuff up. And usually the court, you know, recognises that. But in terms of going back to the court and going back to a judge, I mean, all the time. Because um, you have to be very, very careful. And I presume you guys also have legal advice on tap when you need it for those more complex issues. Massively, uh, massively. So so there are scenarios that can get quite confusing. One of them, and I obviously won't mention the case, but, but one of the most difficult things that I've personally encountered is a youth court uh, offender being transferred for sentencing to the district court. Now, there is an issue in the law there because anything that happens in the youth court is suppressed. That's by statute you can't lift that suppression so if, if an offender is goes through their entire proceeding in the youth court and gets transferred to the district court we can't even look at those youth court documents and report what even happened in the youth court even though they're now in the district court and we can name them and report everything that happened that is one issue that that has been um, the most difficult but in terms of, of how it operates and the support we get from the court it, it's usually pretty good but there are very niggly issues there uh, that can be difficult to to understand and legal advice is a big part of, of how we sort of go about our reporting. Now, this conversation's mostly been about criminal cases, because I mm. think, as you said at the beginning, that's where the public interest is the strongest. Yes. Do you find it different when you're reporting on civil cases or, or different tribunals that are making decisions? These days, predominantly cover tribunals, lawyers and conveyances, teachers, health practitioners. That's sort of the domain that I'm mainly in now. 
very similar. I mean, obviously they operate on the same principles, broadly the same principles, but they can, in many respects, be a bit looser. Suppression is much more generous. The, the utilisation of suppression is much more generous in tribunals, I tend to find, and the media oversight of tribunals has perhaps been lacking more than courts in recent years. So um, tribunals are interesting. There is a lot of public interest in those tribunals, um, particularly health, health and teachers, um, because they are people that the public interact with every day. And then you look at at, um, at civil law within the courts, and that's something that we, we tend to cover a lot as well. Coroners uh, is another one, which is is you know the public interest argument can be can be made. I think better than most areas there. The very basis of of the job of a coroner is to identify issues that should be brought to public attention, so said death doesn't occur again. And and coroner's court is, is a big one that I cover as well. Um, that is is very important. So yeah, criminal tends to be where everyone thinks of court reporting and, and justice reporting comes from, but it is a lot wider than that, solely. You're saying that tribunals tend to be a little bit more sympathetic, perhaps, on the suppression side. Mm. Um, I've got two questions about that. First of all, you said you thought the balance was generally right in court. Do you feel it's too generous in the tribunal? Potentially, very potentially. Now, the thing you've got to remember with the tribunals is that the rights to appeal suppression and and orders that are made by the tribunal is, is the same as it is in the, in the district court. You can appeal it to the high court. In some cases, I think it goes to district. In some cases, it goes direct to, to high court. So there is the appeal um, procedure there. Um, I don't know. It depends on the reasons given why why suppression occurs. I think um, the teachers' disciplinary tribunal tends to use it a lot. That potentially comes from a place of you know the nature of the workforce and having a whole school that's going to have all the students chatting about it. But there is also open justice considerations as well. And my general view is that the identity of a defendant should not be suppressed unless there is a, a reason to do so. And embarrassment or people talking, depending on the circumstances, of course, but isn't necessarily a compelling reason for suppression. And it, it feels like in some of those tribunals that that does occur. Do you think the fact that they're in large part self-regulating or that they've got you know, a large contingent from the profession that they're regulating mm. influences the way those decisions are made? Yes, to, to a degree. Um, and I think in many ways that's that's a good thing. Um, you know, these are professional you know, regulatory bodies that are made up you know, predominantly of those professionals, right? So I think that's a good thing. I think it allows the tribunal to consider what the charge is based on the experience of those people that are, that are sitting, sitting around the table. But legal oversight is very important too, and the chairs usually are always, uh, I think they always are, um, trained and registered lawyers. So that's also an important aspect, aspect as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>